Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist explains the neurological impact of COVID-19 and the curious connection the virus seems to have with strokes. You get this, this virus which is activating everything and one of those systems is the clotting. And then depending on your circumstance, that can culminate into a, a large enough clot that can give you a stroke. A nephrologist talks about how the coronavirus affects the kidneys. The kidney dysfunction that is detected is often an indicator of severity of illness. And that tips us off to a number of downstream events that could occur. And we'll hear how the pandemic has altered the way hospitalized patients receive spiritual care. You know, it's hard not to do the regular rituals of having all the people together. We just kind of, kind of continually are thinking out of the box. All that and the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, the Reverend Terry Culbertson explains how the pandemic has altered spiritual care. But first, we'll learn how what was initially described as a respiratory virus actually may have significant impacts on other parts of the body. A nephrologist will detail how COVID affects the kidneys, and we hear from a neurologist about neurological symptoms caused by the virus. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We've heard a lot in recent weeks about how the novel coronavirus is a respiratory infection, but it turns out that COVID-19 also has an impact on the neurological system. Talking with me about that via web conferencing is Dr. Hesham Massoud, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology and the care of stroke patients at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Massoud. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been reading about a connection between large vessel strokes in young adults who are infected with COVID-19. There was a paper from doctors at Mount Sinai that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it was an observation that they had a uh, an increased amount of some of the worst types of strokes. So these are strokes where um, the mechanism is a large uh, clot that's blocked off a major artery. So they call these uh, types of strokes LVOs or large vessel occlusions. And so they're the kind of the biggest, baddest strokes. And um, the observation was that they had an uptick in that during the, the, you know, this period. And uh, a lot of these patients were young. Um, and so there was this hypothesis that, you know, what, what's happening here? And I think there was also an observation that there was some intraoperative clotting that was noted during during one of the procedures. So, yeah, I read a news article that quoted a stroke neurologist in the midst of a clot retrieval who was able to witness the clots forming. Have you ever seen anything like that in real uh, time? So, you know, we've seen that happen in certain instances. Uh, it's very rare, I'll be honest with you, intraoperative to see that kind of thing. You can see clots forming when you deploy a device that's foreign to the blood, then clot will try to form on it. Sometimes you can get a paradoxical effect with some medications if you don't give the appropriate dose, and then you'll see clotting. But to see clot just form uh, apropos of nothing while you're trying to retrieve it is, is, uh, is unusual and really points to a systemic problem with clotting in that patient. You know, To me, that communicates that the patient overall has a state that we would you know, we would call it hypercoagulable, which just means that their blood is thick and wants to clot, and it wants to do that everywhere. Um, so that's what that communicates to me, that observation. So these patients that, are, that have COVID-19 that also have strokes have some underlying thing that they didn't know about that makes well, them... Yeah, well, that's the question, because, you know, in, the, in that observation, we didn't really get a lot about, you know, each patient and, and what their uh, circumstance was. We just knew that you know, these are younger patients than usual for that hospital, uh, uh, and, uh, and there was clotting. Um, so there's another paper that came out, or some, some observations that came out from, um, from Europe, where the same, same thing where they found a lot more uh, than usual large vessel occlusions and in younger patients. Um, but they were also able to give us a little bit of data about the underlying factors in those patients. And a fair amount of those patients actually did have underlying clotting disorders. 
Um, and to me, that communicates kind of what we're seeing with COVID, which is that, you know, there are susceptible people. And if you're susceptible and you get COVID, then you can have a worse outcome. Uh, it, you know, meaning if you have, you know, underlying problems that can now be unmasked or exploited by, you know, having to deal with a virus. You know, to kind of speak a little bit more about the mechanism of how these things can happen is when you're fighting off an infection of any variety, you know, your, your, your body is sort of on high alert. And um, as a consequence of that, you can have clotting factors and things like that get activated. And if you have an underlying deficiency or abnormality with one of your clotting factors, this may unmask that, uh, that in, in, a, in, a, in a very real way where you'll see, um, where you'll see a, a negative consequence and some, and some clotting. Uh, the other thing that they were able to report on is that, you know, when they did blood tests on these people, they also had markers of, of, uh, of heavy clotting going on. Like, you know, some, you know, one marker is a D-dimer, very elevated. That means that the blood is all clotting. Um, so, so that to me means that, you know, well, there's clot and that clot can form in the artery, it clot can form in the vein. And if you have clots that only form in the veins and no way to get to the brain, then maybe you're just going to get clots in your lungs and clots in other organs. But if you have a PFO, maybe that clot can get up to the brain. So there are all these questions as to, you know, uh, as to exactly what the mechanism is. Um, but in my, my understanding is it seems like, you know, there's an underlying deficiency, it gets unmasked, you get this, this virus which is activating everything, it's hitting the, all systems at, at once, and one of those systems is the clotting. And then depending on your circumstance, that can culminate into a, a, a large enough clot that can give you um, a stroke. Well, can you tell us about the role of neurology in the care of COVID-19 patients? Yeah. Are you, yeah. Are, a neurologist is part of the team, right? Yeah, so I, you know, my my specialty is interventional neurology and stroke. So I'm mostly kept to those patients. Um, we have seen, um, well, I should speak to that. You know, at, at Upstate, we actually have not seen any COVID positive large vessel strokes, um, and uh, so that's interesting. The other thing is, is we also have not seen a decline in our numbers of stroke patients, which we, you know, in terms of patients requiring therapy like TPA or large vessel occlusions. Um, and I'm sure later on we'll talk about signs and symptoms and, and, and for people not to be afraid of, of, of getting care. But this, to me, at least for the couple of months that we have, communicates that I guess our community is doing a good job of, and, and you know, referring hospitals are doing a good job of making sure the sickest patients get to us and then maybe keeping the patients who don't need to have uh, the invasive therapies uh, locally. Um, but we have seen, you know, so, so this infection can, you know, can affect everything, right? So it can affect all these different organs. And, it can affect the brain in, in, in a condition called encephalitis, where it's really just an inflammation of the brain, you know? Um, that can happen uh, when you have respiratory compromise from the virus, you know, where you're not breathing, that can cause, you know, diminished oxygen in the brain, and that can also give you symptoms. So, uh, you know, really, it's a secondary effect, um, but it really is just how this virus really attacks everything. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology and the care of stroke patients at Upstate. And we're talking about the neurological impact of the novel coronavirus. So let me ask you about the neurological symptoms of COVID. What, what is causing the loss of taste and smell that we've heard about? Great question. So, you know, we'll go with a little basic neuroanatomy uh, for, for everybody is, you know, the, there are nerves that control our um, uh, face and control our uh, taste and control our smell that are localized right on the brain uh, or, or parts of the brain. And the one that has to do with smell is the olfactory uh, bulb and tract, and that's located very close to the nasal passages, which is a conduit for the virus to get in. Um, and you can see this with a lot of coronaviruses, you know, you get a cold and then, you, you know, typically your nose gets blocked up. But if the virus invades that nerve ending, which is located right next to the nasal passages, it can compromise your smelling, um, your ability to smell, I should say. And, you know, also you can have uh, altered taste. It's important for people to remember that flavor has to do with smell and taste. So it doesn't have to be a complete loss. It can be an alteration. Um, one thing that people, uh, you know, wonder about is what's the recovery of, of, that, of that smell, you know, a loss of, of smell. And 
it's really variable, to be honest with you. Some people will get it back within weeks or months, and some people will never fully get it back. Um, Interesting. Are there other neurologic symptoms that you're seeing in patients? Um, I think, you know, as a secondary effect of the COVID, so for instance, if the patient has this condition we talked about briefly, encephalitis, depending on where the infection is, you can have all kinds of presentations neurologically like seizures and, and things like that, movement disorders sometimes, um, depending on where the virus uh, it has infected. This sort of encephalitis, you know, where, which is just a sort of a broad term of inflammation in the brain, and the manifestation is going to be dependent on where that inflammation is. Well, I'd like to ask you about people who have neurologic conditions, such as Parkinson's or ALS. Do you think they're at greater risk for contracting the virus? I think the, the big thing is, is not necessarily the risk of contracting it as much as the risk of having a bad outcome if you have it. You know, one thing that we really don't know is how many people have COVID. We don't know that. We haven't tested enough people to see how many people actually have it. And there is some information coming out that there are lots of asymptomatic patients that are testing positive too in some cohorts. So we really don't know how many people have COVID. Um, I think the big question here is what kind of people who get COVID are going to have the, the, the negative, uh, you know, outcome and, and, you know, be more susceptible to the, the, the pathology that can occur. And I think, you know, ALS is a good example because ALS can affect your ability to breathe um, and, it, you know, can compromise that air exchange. And if you have a virus that's also compromising that, that can cause a greater decline. Any neurodegenerative illness or uh, illness which has a immunocompromised state associated with it is really going to represent that you're a little bit more weaker uh, in regards to fighting off infections. And that includes COVID, which we know is really a very sort of vicious virus compared to other coronaviruses in so, terms of its personality. If I have a neurologic condition, I should be sure I'm taking these precautions we've talked about with Hand washing and limiting contact, and I mean, I'm I'm in one of those high risk categories. Absolutely, okay. and also it's very important for everybody who doesn't have uh, a, a, an immunocompromised or or uh, a susceptible type of, of uh, health condition to also practice social distancing. Because again, we don't know, and hand washing and mask covering and things like that, because we really don't know who has COVID. So we have to assume that even if you're asymptomatic, that you have it, and, and, and then you may pass it along un unknowingly to someone uh, who then gets the negative uh, effect of it. So we're really doing this as, as part of a community, you know, together. We're all in this together, you know. Well, getting back to stroke, I know in some communities, um, hospitals have seen a dramatic decrease in the number of stroke patients. And I think the theory is people are afraid to come to the hospital. So can you kind of walk us through what happens at Upstate during this COVID time? Is it safe yeah. for people to come to the hospital? Yeah. So I will say, you know, just right off the bat, for, for our numbers, like we sort of mentioned briefly, we haven't seen a decline in our treatments. So our treatment numbers of TPA and doing the clot retrieval has not declined. In some instances, maybe it's gone up a little bit, but not in young patients and we haven't had COVID positive. So to me, it means that people are coming, but, but, you know, we are seeing that our inpatient census of people that we typically have who've had a stroke, you know, um, they're not getting treated, but maybe they're in the hospital and we're doing a workup, that number has decreased. And I think that that really has to do with the strength of our network, because we're able to talk to all of the hospitals and we're able to triage patients. Um, who needs who needs to come to the comprehensive center? Who can stay at the local center? And that's really uh, how the model should be. But with that being said, if you look at um, you know overall numbers of other things, which I think are reflective of stroke patients, like um, you know cardiac patients getting stents and things like that, those numbers are significantly down. So so um, I think the the big the big thing to to let everybody know is that you know it, it's not like um, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice by coming to the hospital if you have a condition that warrants it. COVID should not stop medical care from being delivered. That's not how it works, you know? Um, so if you have a, a sudden onset deficiency and so, so sudden onset, you know, loss of function that localizes to your brain, whatever that may be, speech, arm, 
you know, site, you have to come to the emergency room because these treatments are still available. Now, what we do is we assume that anybody coming through the ED is a COVID positive patient until proven otherwise for our stroke patients. And so we have a protocol for them where they get masked, we have precautions, we test them. And until that test comes back negative, we treat you as a COVID patient. But um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't come. You know, you, you got to come in. If you have a symptom, it's, it's, it trumps everything, honestly. And uh, it's important to note that I don't think coronavirus should, should make people fearful from getting medical attention. So let me, uh, you said you treat people as a COVID patient, but this is while simultaneously you're treating them for stroke in, in the event yes. they have it. Yes. So, so all so of that happens at once. Yeah. So for instance, you come in, we say, okay, we think he, you know, just uh, assuming that this patient is COVID, because again, we don't know if the person has symptoms or not. They may not be able to communicate to us that we know that they may be asymptomatic patients are going to have, asymptomatic patients are going to have uh, potentially COVID. So we put a mask on them. They put them in isolation um, uh, in terms of precautions, isolative precautions, um, but we still render the care, you know, uh, we just sort of have a heightened level of uh, protection for the healthcare providers who are dealing with that patient. Well, that's very good to know. Thank you so much to Dr. Hesham Masood, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How COVID-19 can lead to kidney failure in otherwise healthy people next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The COVID-19 infection can affect the kidneys, so I'm talking about that with Dr. Sri Narsapur, he leads the Department of Medicine at Upstate, and he's also the Division Chief of Nephrology. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Narsapur. Thank you, Amber. So what is the role of a nephrologist on the team of caregivers looking after people with COVID-19 infections? A nephrologist is a specialist in kidney disease. The role of the nephrologist on the team is largely supportive. We are called in when the doctors who are taking care of a patient with COVID, or any patient for that matter, detect or are puzzled by finding suggestive of a disorder in normal kidney function. So we are a consultative service. Do you end up uh, taking care of everyone who comes in with COVID-19 or not necessarily if they don't have kidney problems? No, not necessarily. Roughly between 10 and 30% of people who come in have some evidence of kidney dysfunction. And we might not even see all of those patients. So we definitely see a small but very important group of patients who come in important because the kidney dysfunction that is detected is often an indicator of severity of illness. And that tips us off to a number of downstream events that could occur. So can this infection lead to kidney failure in people that were otherwise healthy? The infection can lead to kidney failure as well as the treatment Sometimes there's evidence that the infection causes some damage to the kidney itself. In addition, the treatment for COVID, especially when people have pulmonary or lung involvement, is to try to dry them out so their lungs aren't filled with fluid. That way you can keep them off the ventilator or improve the oxygen that they absorb. In doing, in doing so, in trying to dry somebody out, in restricting their fluids, the kidney can sometimes be an innocent bystander. So if the kidney has a low amount of blood flow to it because you are drying out a patient, so to speak, it can become a little bit traumatized. And over time, it can be damaged, resulting in short-term damage to the kidney itself. So short-term meaning it is reversible? Yes, in a healthy person, other things being stable, the kidney damage is typically reversible and largely dictated by the course of the COVID infection itself. If the COVID infection is not reversible, then the kidney is going to have downstream problems. 
Oh, interesting. Now, this applies to someone in the hospital, correct? I, I'm just wondering if someone is at home with the COVID-19 infection, are they at danger for this? A healthy person who's at home who acquires COVID is at very low danger for having kidney problems. It's typically a problem that develops and uh, blossoms in the hospital due to a lot of factors, including the intensity of the infection. So you have to have a pretty strong infection before you end up with kidney damage um, if you haven't had it already. So how do you tell in hospitalized patients, how do you tell that their kidneys are being affected? In hospitalized patients, it's relatively easy because, A, we have blood tests that are a very good indicator of kidney function and dysfunction. B, we have very close monitoring of blood pressure, urine output, weights, so we can see what the fluid balance is in a patient. And knowing all of these things gives us a lot of good, objective information on assessing a patient's kidney function in the hospital under supervised conditions. Are there any warning signs for people who are not in the hospital? How would they know that they're having problems with their kidneys? That's a very interesting question because as with all kidney disease, not just with kidney disease related to COVID, the kidneys are a silent actor. So when they go out of, out of normal function, people can't feel it. There is no easy signal. Many people are concerned that their urine output might fall, and that's true, but that's a very late finding. So the important take-home point is the kidney dysfunction associated with any disease, diabetes, hypertension, uh, uh, any kind of thing that could predispose to kidney disease, including COVID, is silent. And it's only detected by measurements um, that are performed in the, in the lab. That said, People won't develop kidney disease from COVID typically unless they have pretty strong COVID itself. So something else will probably bring you to attention and they will discover that you have kidney problems um, as, a, as a consequence of that. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Shri Narsapur. He's the Division Chief of Nephrology at Upstate. And we're talking about the impact of the novel coronavirus on the kidneys. Now, I wanted to ask you why people who have kidney disease to begin with are at greater risk during this pandemic. People who have kidney disease at baseline are at greater risk. Part of the reason is that kidney disease is often precipitated by other diseases that also put you at increased risk for developing COVID. For example, Diabetes and hypertension are two of the big ones. Anything that damages the blood lining, the endothelium, can cause damage to the kidneys. So people who smoke are also at increased risk for kidney problems and at risk for COVID. Once you develop kidney disease, your immune system is slightly compromised. So you can't fight off infections as well as you might have if you didn't have kidney disease. So you're starting out behind the eight ball. Somebody with kidney disease who acquires a COVID infection that might be relatively mild in somebody without kidney disease is going to be at increased risk for developing major complications, including the need to get hospitalized and potentially the need to getting intubated and being put on a breathing machine. So someone with a weakened immune system not only is more susceptible to the infection, but if they do get COVID-19, they may have a rougher time with it. Yes, exactly. Well, let me ask you this. If someone is taking immunosuppressants, knowing all of this, the risk, should they keep taking them now, even though it's depressing their immune system? Well, the immunosuppressants are being provided for a specific reason. It might be that somebody has um, a disease like lupus, or it might be that they have a kidney transplant. The immunosuppressants are very carefully studied and monitored. They have a lot of background track history, and they're providing a service. Stopping the immunosuppressants exposes the patient to an, a true definite risk of having their disease state proceed out of control, maybe losing their kidney transplant. 
the theoretical benefit of reducing the risk of COVID is probably not as great as the real risk of losing your um, kidney transplant or the benefit of the immunosuppressant. So I would say absolutely people should not stop or even reduce their immunosuppression. Everybody has this caveat of uh, talk to your doctor before making any changes in your medicines. But I would almost go so far as to say, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Okay. Well, you mentioned kidney transplant or kidney recipients um, are part of that population. Are kidney transplants still being done during the pandemic? Kidney transplants are still being done. They are being done in a very cautious, very careful fashion. Both the donor and the recipient get tested before the transplant, and we try to minimize any risk of transmission of COVID during the procedure, obviously. That said, there are cases of COVID transmission, and those patients have not necessarily done poorly. They've made it through, but it's just a very few case examples, and um, it's nothing to feel particularly reassured about. As time goes by, we'll be able to understand who is uh, at higher risk and who's at lower risk and what the risks and benefits are in any given situation. But as you can imagine, some transplants are not particularly elective, like a heart transplant or a lung transplant or even a liver transplant is not something you can sit and wait on. So it may be a situation where we have to bite the bullet and just do it. We don't do those transplants here, but in other centers, they are starting to move ahead because they know that if they do nothing, the patient will die. If they do something, they have a risk of acquiring COVID, but it's um, it's sort of being caught between a rock and a hard place. Wow. Well, what, do you, what would you say are the special precautions that someone with kidney disease should be taking during the pandemic? I am happy to answer that question because I tell everyone the same thing. Kidney disease or not, the most important thing you can do is wash your hands and wash your hands again. The second most important thing is exactly what's been advised about physical distancing and trying to minimize your encounters with people who you're not seeing all the time. In other words, outside of your living situation. So I would definitely advocate for social distancing, wearing a mask, and washing your hands a million times a day is probably the single most important thing you can do. Now, what do you say to someone who's on dialysis they, I mean, they have to leave their home to go for dialysis, correct? Yes, and we are doing dialysis on people three times a week. We have them come to the dialysis unit. Uh, a lot of patients are coming by private transportation. They come by their own family's car rather than public transportation, so that minimizes exposure. As soon as they walk into the unit, they get a mask. They are asked to wash their hands. Everybody in the unit is already masked and is washing their hands, and they are physically separated as much as possible. When they're done, they leave the unit, wash your hands, leave the unit, and get back into their car and go home. We tell them to not to avoid going out, to avoid going to the grocery store or doing anything that they don't absolutely necessarily have to do. Their trip to the dialysis unit is their outing uh, three times a week, and that's it. So we try to minimize exposure. From the evidence that I've seen, there is little to believe that people are actually picking up COVID in dialysis units because people are so careful and so aware, and the staff are so cautious about wearing gloves and hand washing. The higher likelihood is that there's um, there's infection acquired outside and doing kind of those routine mundane things like going to the grocery store or somewhere where other people might be touching things. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Shri Narsapur. He's the Division Chief of Nephrology at Upstate, and he leads the Department of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll look at how patients are receiving spiritual care when they can't have visitors.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The coronavirus has altered hospital operations, and that includes the provision of spiritual care. With me to talk about how things are going at Upstate University Hospital is the Reverend Terry Culbertson. She leads spiritual care and the clinical pastoral education program at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you so much, Amber. Really appreciate being here. So how is your team tending to the spiritual care needs of patients during this time when visitors are not allowed? Great question. Um, yeah, that, I think that was our very first um, real adjustment was no more families and no more of our volunteers. We are a department that relies heavily on um, folks uh, assisting and working alongside of us. Many of them are graduates of our training program. And um, without those folks helping, we lost half our workforce immediately. Um, both campuses, both the community and downtown. So we really had to rethink um, what was our priority. And clearly it's folks who are end of life, folks who uh, are changed in terms of their prognosis, diagnosis, um, people who are alone and don't have anybody at all. Um, and we were able also to start establishing a remote team of people to help us who are part of our uh, department. So we have, we started thinking about, well, we could have inside, outside, sort of like the movie, <laughs> inside out. Um, the outside team are the ones making the remote calls to families of vented patients, such as our COVID patients. And not just checking on them, but really offering pastoral support. You know, how hard it is not to be able to see your loved one. Um, I think that to me is the most agonizing thought, not to be able to come in and be next to your, your, your loved one who's very critically ill. So our remote team has been really doing daily support for these families. And um, then we expanded. We thought, well, we are getting more COVID positive patients who are not vented. We don't go in those rooms as chaplains usually because of the PPE issue. So we established and expanded the remote team to include those people. <laughs> and um, one of the things they're doing is asking directly, how can we assist with their spiritual needs while they're in the hospital? We have a lot of different um, opportunities here. Like we have our own TV station where we broadcast our services live. We did all of the Holy Week, Easter, um, and patients can tune in for free, even though they obviously there. Um, we have figured out a way to bring Holy Communion to patients who are on COVID precautions without actually going in the room. It's kind of complicated, but it's really cool. And um, we just kind of, kind of continually are thinking out of the box. Um, one really wonderful thing that happened, several area pastors called and wanted to help. And of course, they can't come inside here. And uh, one pastor has managed to get us a numerous number of what we call prayer shawls or prayer blankets and did all the washing, did all the bagging. And, you know, you think about if you're a patient in a room with no family and you want to feel comforted, being covered with this lovely, beautiful colored prayer blanket is an incredible comfort. And the people that make them pray as they make them. So that was quite a wonderful addition to our work these prayer blankets being made for us. It sounds like you've come up with a lot of sort of creative ways to adapt. I think that's what we, every day we're thinking, Amber, what can we do that would be creative? For example, also, we've had a hospital choir in our department for probably almost 10 years. And we round once a week and we go to the bedside. We do referred um, singing. And it sounds a little different, but, you know, singing, there's an old saying, if you sing, you pray twice. And it's a great spiritual intervention. So you can imagine everything's shut down. We all have to wear masks. Um, we as a choir weren't sure what to do, but we still had referrals. And we decided to try remote choir singing. So we went up to a COVID floor and there was a gentleman there who was a musician. 
and was alone and sad and anxious. And um, we got on the iPad and FaceTimed with him. And we asked him what he wanted. And he said, well, I really like the Beatles. And we sang, let it be. And he cried and we cried and it was very powerful. And the next day he actually got released. Which wow. was really great. Yeah, so that was cool. <laughs> That's gotta lift the spirits of the staff as well, just to hear. Yeah, just to hear the music. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that seems to have been true, you know, over the years when we come around. Um, the choir, one of our mottos is we don't practice. And <laughs> the other motto we have is you might feel better when we stop singing. It's kind of a joke. But, um, the choir, the, I think staff have always been very kind to us and very, uh, really like hearing the music on the boards. And um, it, sometimes we sing directly to them too. So the choir is reinventing itself, I guess, is what's happening. So. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Reverend Terry Culbertson from Upstate University Hospital's Department of Spiritual Care. So what has this pandemic done to the clinical pastoral education program? Well, um, our CPE program, as it's called, is a nationally accredited training program the Department of Education. There's only 300 in the entire country. So um, we are very fortunate that administration here has seen the validity of having such a training program. And we have students coming from the 14 counties who are either um, seeking ordination and needed for their process or their seminary degree, or because they are thinking they might want to become chaplains or are interested in enhancing their pastoral ministries. So um, this past year we've had we had 12 students in training. That's a lot of students. And they were all assigned different clinical arenas. Two thirds of them um, really could not continue to do the clinical work as of about a month ago. It was their age, um, their family's concerns, um, health concerns, um, so it really affected us a great deal. Um, there's a, a clinical component that's required for the training of uh, a certain number of hours. So um, luckily, most of them had almost completed that number. But the thing that changed, Amber, was the, uh, our direct instructional time. Like, we do a lot of experiential education, um, role play, acting out scenarios, replaying patient visits, how can we get better? What did we do that we could improve? And um, so we began to meet on Zoom. And I don't know about you, but you know, Zoom is great. It's not the same. It's kind of challenging with all the little boxes of faces. But um, I was really proud of the groups. They really adapted. We were able to figure out how to um, do the um, shared screen thing. And last Thursday, we graduated the 12 students and we did a Zoom graduation. And oh. the cool thing was um, because it gave more access to people that couldn't get here, we had over 50 people participate in Zoom. Oh. It was cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm working uh, right now on um, our summer program, will start in a couple of weeks. Unfortunately, a number of people that were uh, coming are no longer coming. I imagine. Right. So we're not sure what that's going to look like or what, what does curriculum look like in COVID? In other words, the things we traditionally teach, I think, have to be changed and rethought. Um, and that's going to be a big challenge the next couple of weeks. Well, in terms of, of patients with COVID, um, coming to a hospital can be a scary experience anytime. But during this time of COVID, it's it's even more so. So what are you saying to help put people at ease if they have to be in the hospital? Yeah, it's hard. A lot of the COVID patients that I've connected to um, through the phone or trying to do the remote thing is um, they're so tired and they're so worn. It's It's very difficult, I find, to connect to a number of them. Now, one of my remote team members uh, is really trying to connect every day with patients on one of our units called 6K. 
example. And um, what we're trying to do is really utilizing good, the good practice of listening. One of my chaplains used to say, uh, listening is practicing good shut up. <laughs> so in other words, really giving people the opportunity to speak their fears without being told, don't feel that way. Very much feels that way. Feels that way for them, for their families, their staff, um, and to um, be able to fully hear the feelings and validate them, I think is clear. The second thing is then to um, discover with that patient what has been your resources to her over the years. Everybody who comes in here has had a life, and they've had things that have been hard. And when they remember what they've utilized in their life to cope, a lot of times it comes down to, you know, it's really been my faith. It's been my belief in a God that's always with me. Um, that recollection and recalling to mind of the strengths of that person's life then can help them cope and, and allay some of their fears. I think as well. So those are things. And the third thing is really um, the utilization of religious ritual, even remotely. Um, like I mentioned, um, we had a patient that was COVID positive that went at Holy Communion. And one of the chaplains at Cross Hospital actually gave us this idea. You, you can do the prayers through, we have a little device called a Vasera, while the nurse is in the room and the communion host can be carried in in a small little baggie and then the patient can take it out and take it themselves. And then the so, Sarah device, they could hear your voice through that, right? Hear the voice and hear the prayers, right, as well. And then the nurse that's in there can participate if, if that's something important to them. Um, so that's been really very powerful to continue to think about religious ritual and that it looks different remotely. You know, Amber, one of the things about chaplains, we love to hands and we love to hug and touch and, and, you know, that whole challenge of not being able to do that is very difficult. Um, somebody gave me the word, they said, what we're doing now is um, proximal intercessory prayer, a change from touching. So proximal intercessory means it's approximately, um, you know, present, but not necessarily in the same location. <laughs> Um, and I thought about that. I thought, you know, God and the spirit is non-local. You know, prayer can cover the globe. And um, I think that that's a very powerful way to think that just because we're not necessarily next to each other doesn't mean we're not together. But people, you know, haven't been able to gather at church or synagogue for, for weeks now. Um, right. I wonder whether you believe there's going to be any sort of lasting effect from this disruption? I don't know. It's a really good question. It was, um, you know, and Ramadan's going on right now, and it's really, you know, a very hard thing not to have the rituals and the gatherings every night like traditional. I was so impressed by one of the masjids in town has created a, a safe um, space in their masjid. They've coated things with plastic and they're keeping social distance but people are coming in to pray. And I think that um, trying to figure out other ways to worship, a lot of churches are being creative. Here at Upstate, you know, we, we have had daily worship. We've just had to limit the numbers, but we feel like um, we've really been good at remote worship for many years here because um, most of our patients can't come down and remote worship has been part of worked on. So uh, we're very grateful to have a TV station of our own. And it's amazing how I've had patients say to me, I felt like you were talking directly to me, like you were looking right at me. And I'm like, well, I, I certainly was trying to make eye contact <laughs> through the camera, <laughs> you know. Um, but um, I know, um, you know, it was hard for uh, our, our priest chaplain, he did the Holy Week services. And, you know, it's hard not to do the regular rituals of having all the people together and singing with voice. And how will it change worship? Um, 
one of our students who's a pastor, he said he thinks actually it has helped his church because people that were not able to come because they were too sick or couldn't get there, he actually has had more people. Do we all need time to grieve because some people have lost loved ones, some people have lost jobs, and we've all lost our way of life? Yes. Um, you know, Amber, I think um, pausing to acknowledge our loss, I mean, as we're talking, I feel tearful because you're right, nothing is the way it's been. And I know even here with chaplaincy, we grieve the loss of being able to be close to patients and families and um, comforting them and, and being present and holding their hand. You know, people who can't see faces because we're all wearing masks. People have lost their jobs. Um, I was talking to my sister who's a dental hygienist in Baltimore. She's lost her income. Uh, she doesn't know if she can return to work and has no benefits. Um, I also was thinking about the grief, the loss of our loved ones um, through, through death or through uh, health we can't see. So every grief in this crisis, in this pandemic, is what I would call complex and complicated grief. Because it's connected to so many issues in society that um, evoke multiple reactions. And I think to really acknowledge those and not to dismiss those is key. Not to feel like, oh, I should just power through or to dismiss it as insignificant. Um, I think when we grieve, we reach a new level of depth. And the psalmists talk about lament. We lament for perhaps what we've lost. And then we can claim what we found. And the new foundness, I believe, will leave us stronger. So is there anything you believe this pandemic experience is going to teach us as a society? I pray it teaches us kindness, the importance of connectedness communication, and that truly the greatest gift of being a human being is to be here for one another. Thank you to the Reverend Terry Culbertson. She leads Upstate's Department of Spiritual Care and the Clinical Pastoral Education Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poetry happens everywhere, as Marley Stewart, assistant editor of Louisiana Literature, poet and short story writer, reminds us in his evocative poem, Pastry Cream Reverie. His speaker, a pastry chef, is focused on his craft yet able to create a lovely meditation for us at the same time. I'm trying to remember what it was, stirring tempered eggs into hot milk and sugar at the shop today. What exactly ran through my mind as the foam cooked off and the cream began to spit? What was it? The cream was turning out well, hot enough to set when I poured in the eggs. Steam crept up my arms, then snuck back into the pot like a request withdrawn and the foam cooked off. The cream thickened and began to spit. But wasn't there something before I emptied the cream into pans to cool, something there and lost in the pot, like a drop of sweat wixed in, something that stopped the steam on the crook of my arm while the bell rang over the door? It was good to know the milk was hot enough already and I wouldn't risk burning it turning up the flame after adding the eggs. Maybe it was that small reassurance, nothing else. How much of life comes down to a steady hand and patience? The second poem is from poet Alf Abu Hajla from Tahoe, California. He takes a look at adolescence from the vantage point of adulthood and sees what he lacked and what he's tried to provide his own family. 
Here is Evening Feast. When mom passed out from painkillers, leaving me cold plates of love, sometimes with a note, I'd live off nothing but domestic fantasies for days. Under dripping autumn branches, I watched entire families gather in white linen kitchen windows for their nightly rituals. With hurried hands and still dressed in office clothes, husband and wife silently reconnect over their disappointing son who stares at a Depeche Mode poster wishing he was free from curfews and consequences. Expectations I would only lie about when I said mom wants me home by sunset or at least before they turn on the streetlights. A rule my daughters know well as they rush back to our house where you stand in the open kitchen among steamed rice and fried fish ready to serve dinner. The overweight dog snorts by the fireplace, chasing his own nightmares. Outside, in the early winter rain, eyes move unnoticed through the trees. A starved young heart in the dark, feasting on our intimate performance. has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.